and Christ Covenant. My name is Jordan, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I just got back from a little vacation. I want to thank you for the opportunity you gave me to travel with my family, to spend some time resting. I very much appreciate that. Uh, now it's Pastor Brian's turn, and so he is away with his family, resting and rejuvenating and enjoying the creation of God. And so you are stuck with me for the next three weeks, for better or for worse, for worse most likely, but I will do my best. But as I was praying for you and praying for myself, thinking about what we would talk about together for the next three weeks, I was praying, Lord, give me by your spirit a passage that we can cover in totality, like the whole thing, but really be able to exegete or, or pull out all that you want us to hear. So I started looking through the Bible, and my first idea, which stuck, was let me find a book of the Bible that has three chapters, three doable chapters, uh, that are short enough that it could cover one chapter per week, all three chapters. So I was looking through, and I stumbled upon Second Peter. Second Peter, I could pretty much guarantee most of you are not familiar with, because I know I really wasn't that familiar with it. If you were to ask me what Peter wrote in 2 Peter, I could maybe name a verse, but that's about it. But as I began to study it, it being three chapters, it was perfect, and I began to read Peter's letter. This was an epistle, a letter, and I realized, as reading through it, that this was Peter's last word. That Peter speaks throughout the letter about how the Lord has revealed to him that he's going to die really soon. You'll see, we'll read that. And so this is Peter's swan song. This is Peter's last will and testament. Now we know who the Apostle Peter is. He's most famous as being the rock on which the church will be built. This is what Jesus called him. He's also very infamous because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus told him that he would deny, that Peter would deny him three times. So Peter is infamous and famous, but we know that the Lord used him to build the church. And he went on to be a great early church father. But here we have, again, 2 Peter, if you have your Bibles, Peter's last will and testament. And I called it Peter's postscript. And postscript is something that we used to use a lot when we wrote letters. Some of us still use it in emails. And postscript is often shortened to P.S. So sincerely, Jordan, P.S. I hope your family's doing well. P.S. I can't wait to see you. P.S., etc. So that's what postscript means, and I believe that that's something that you say as a final thought of what you wanted these people to know, your intended audience. So I think that Peter, 2 Peter, he is saying P.S., and he's given us, as many do on their deathbed, the most important words he can let last in the hands as a legacy for him as an apostle. So I found this profound and really interesting, and, and so I thought that we could study this together for the next three weeks, one chapter per week, through this final word of the Apostle Peter. So we're going to start from the beginning. I'm not going to read the whole chapter as a portion at first. Um, it's 21 verses, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start reading, then we'll stop, and again, we'll exegete or we'll pull out from what we've just read the meaning in which the Holy Spirit wants us to gain. This is called uh, an exegete, or pulling out of Scripture. So let's start from the beginning. So if you have your Bible, 2 Peter is right before John's couple letters in the back, right after 1 Peter, obviously. And he starts the way many 
Most letters started in biblical times. We start letters like, Dear John. Biblical times, you would address the sender or the receiver as who you were. So they knew who they were reading immediately. You would start with an introduction of yourself and maybe your credentials. And so Peter says, Simeon Peter, which Simeon, not to be confused, see, we stopped, we stopped on it right away. Simeon is just Aramaic for Simon. And so Simeon was an Aramaic uh, way to pronounce Simon, so he is just writing in Aramaic, and Simeon was one of the most familiar common names in the Aramaic language. So he says, Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Just in that little introduction. There's so much rich theology right there. See, he introduces himself as Simon Peter, and then he gives his credentials. He says, I am a servant and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his introduction. Let's talk about those two titles, a servant and an apostle. First, an apostle means that you were living with the living Christ, that you were, you were discipled by the living Jesus Christ, the physical living Jesus Christ. It was the highest office of the early church. If you were an apostle, you were like the OG. You were the man of the early church because you were with physically the Lord. It's the highest thing. So these people receiving this letter are like, this is from an apostle. An apostle wrote these things, and we have it in our hands. But Peter doesn't start with that. Peter starts with, I'm Peter, and I'm a servant, or in Greek, doulos, which means slave. I'm a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, a slave was somebody who's been bought and has a master. And so what Peter is declaring that I've been bought by Jesus, he's my master, and I was with him as he lived. Peter is declaring himself a slave, which is kind of ironic, a slave to Jesus, because if you look throughout Scripture, you'll see that Jesus is often referred to as the one who has come to set the prisoners free. And Peter says, I'm a slave. And that's because Jesus has come to set the prisoners free from sin and from death. And upon a purchase of you, a purchase of a new slave, they would become not a slave to sin, which is deception and destruction, but now they become a slave to righteousness, goodness, joy, content, a thing that we would all wish that we were just slaves to that our will could be bound by that. And so he says, I am a slave to righteousness. John 8 speaks of, of Jesus being the one who sets us free. Therefore, if a, the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So there's no mistake here. There is freedom in being a servant of Christ. He has given us all things. That is freedom. So in Christ's purchase of a people, of a, of a slave nation... The purchase, which for the price was his blood. In that purchase, he has made us slaves to righteousness, which is a different kind of bondage. So Peter, two different spectrums, introduces himself, a slave and the apostle. But Peter is teaching through the Holy Spirit of the example of Jesus himself. He heard Jesus say, the Son of God has, not come, has come to serve. So this is something that Jesus had taught him in Matthew 20. He said that Jesus himself had come to serve. 
So what, we're four or five words into this letter and you see how the Holy Spirit can move within even an introduction? He continues in the second half of the first verse and he gives us a clue of who Peter is writing this letter to. I'm writing this letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, the apostles, by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was so exciting to these readers because apostles are like rock stars. And he's saying, we have the same, the same faith that has been obtained or gifted to us is the same as the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul. We have that ability to have that free gift. And Peter says, yeah. He says, you have received a power in you. You have received a divine power, the same power that raised my master from the dead. He says, this is the same power which has raised you from the dead. Like Ephesians 2, and the apostle Paul is teaching of what it means to be dead in your sin. He says, you made alive. He has made you alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then fast forward, but it was God, rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. I have this power as an apostle, and so do you. It's equal. You, in this room today, have that power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's been given to you. Peter's echoing Paul's statement about being alive in Christ, obtaining a gift of faith. Theologians call this gifting of faith, where Christ gives you the ability to have faith, imputation. Now, imputation simply means of accrediting or, or, or blaming, giving something to someone else. Okay, so what we talk about imputation and we're talking about the faith that you have now is because Christ has impute, imputed, imputed, thank you, imputed his righteousness into you. And in exchange, your sin was imputed onto him. And that is what Peter is talking about as he's talking about this valuable gift, this faith that we have equally. It was gifted to us. Who, give this, who gifted this to us? It was Christ. He goes on to explain. In verse 2, Peter continues his introduction. He says something very common. He says, grace and peace. Now, grace and peace was a common Jewish uh, pleasantry. So just like you say when you see your friend, hey, how's it going? Long time to see. How you doing today, sir? Pleasantries that we exchange, what would be common, and it's still very common in the Jewish tradition, is peace be with you and also with you. Shalom aleichem. Aleichem shalom. And so Peter says that, peace be with you, but he doesn't just say peace be with you. He says something interesting. He says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Multiplied. It's like if you were to exchange a present, day, a present day pleasantry with like, hey, how's it going? I hope you have a really good day. I hope your day is filled with everything you've ever wanted. I hope you have a great big meal and you get to rest tonight. It's like if somebody came up to you and said that instead of, what's up, man? You'd be like, whoa. Paul is saying, peace be with you, but not just with you. Multiplied in you. 
And if you want to know how to do that, if you want grace and peace to be multiplied in your life, this is how you do it. Grow in the knowledge, the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. You're going to hear that word knowledge a lot today. It's the common thesis of Peter's letter that the knowledge of God is what gives you the ability to have an increase in your faith and deeper and more intimate relationship with our Lord. You'll notice as we study, continue to study this epistle of Peter that his main objective is knowing God. Now, knowledge of God it means one of two things, okay? The, the scriptures tell us that everyone has a knowledge of God, even those who claim they don't. Scriptures tell us that God has created the world in such a way that men are left without excuse. Meaning that whether you say you believe in God or not, everybody can at least, whether they want to admit it or not, have an idea that there is a higher power. That it's not by accident that we're in this perfect cosmic position to be able to live and breathe perfectly. That it's not by accidents, chance, or coincidences that we're perfectly far away enough from the sun. That there is a God cosmically or a higher power that has created. And it says that within man, all of us have that understanding, basic understanding. Theologians call this a general revelation. God has revealed himself generally as a creator. The second way you can have knowledge of God, and the, the way that Peter's speaking of, we call special revelation. And it's not only how God has revealed himself as being this creator, this magnificent artist and powerful uh, sustainer of the universe, but he's also this very intimate, loving, caring provider for those whom he has called unto himself. So loving that he would send his son to die for those people. And if he has specially revealed himself to you by the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to get that to understand that, that this great God desires to have a relationship with you. And that's called special revelation, a special knowledge of God. And that's what Peter's talking about here. God has given all those who have the Holy Spirit the capacity to know who he is. Some of us have been awakened to the reality of his love if we've been called to him. And while this knowledge has been gifted to us once, your salvation has been given to you one time through Jesus' blood on the cross. Once you are saved, you are saved forever, and nothing can add or take away from your salvation. That's signed, sealed, delivered. If you believe Jesus was the Messiah who died for your sins and rose again from the dead, therefore you get to rise again from the dead and spend all of eternity with him, that's it. It's done. Nothing you could do could ever separate you from that love. However, you do have the opportunity and the capacity to deepen your relationship with God by the increasing of your faith. There's many theologians that say, not many theologians, many Christians really that say, you know what, I know Jesus died for my sins, therefore I do not go to hell and I get to go to heaven. And while it's all true, they're like, that's good enough for me. I don't need to go to church, I don't need to study scripture, I know that I am saved by the blood of Christ and I get to go to heaven. And while that is true, that sounds very much like what we call fire insurance. Like as long as I know that and believe that, I don't go to hell. 
And people will, will dismiss the need of studying scripture and doctrines. And that's so sad because scripture is filled with promises, with covenants, with revelations of who God is and how he wants to relate to you and how you can live in this dark world and have joy and contentment and be able to share love to people that come across where God has shown you love. And so doctrine is important. Studying scripture is important. Growing in knowledge of God is important. To know him is to love him. My, one of my favorite uh, theologians, kind of my theological hero, is the late R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul wrote this simple sentence that says, the more we learn of God, the more we know him, and the greater capacity we have to love him. I want, to think, I want you to think about somebody you love deeply. You love that person because you know them and they know you. It would not, I would not be a good son if I say I love my mom because she birthed me into this world. See you, mom, I'm good. Thanks for making me. No, I have a relationship and I love my mother because she knows me, she made me, she loves me, she knows what's best for me. I know that she has my best intention in her heart. And so the more I know about my mom and I hear about her history and, how, and what's made her the person who she is, the more I love her. Possibly love something that you don't know. So God's given us a way to know him and to love him. He continues in verse 3. Wow, only two verses so far. I'll try to pick it up. All right. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, again, of him who called us to his glory and excellence, by which he granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Again, the power that has been given to you calls it a divine power. The Greek word used here for power is dunamis. Dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. And you all know about dynamite this week, right? Wednesday, there was a lot of dynamite being exploded all over Cooper City. That's where I live. Until one in the morning. But there's power. Dynamite, when we think of dynamite, we think of power, and if we could only think of God's spirit in us like that, wouldn't that change the way we do things? That God has given us the power to look towards his divine nature and look away from the, the, the desires of our flesh? If we have the same power, dynamite, that raised Jesus from the dead, what is our excuse for when we justify our sin? I, I echo Paul and say that I'm probably the greatest sinner in this room. And I will do everything to justify my sin. Everything. I will say, Lord, you made me this way. I'm like this because you put this situation in my way. I'm like this because, look, 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 at, look at what am I supposed to do? My only option is to sin. But I for, have I forgotten that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within me? And that the Lord has promised to give me the power to turn away from that sin and to turn towards righteousness. So my excuses are invalid. They're just what they are, excuses. God has given me the power to turn away from my sin, to hate my sin, and to love righteousness. 
He continues, verse 5, For this reason, make every effort, the word there is, be diligent, to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now he, he starts this list by saying, be diligent. Make every effort to seek these things. Don't do it passively or on when you have time, when you feel like it. No, he says, give it due diligence. If you were to sign a, if you were buying a house and you're reading through a contract, you're giving that contract due diligence because you want to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. You read every word. And that's what Peter is saying about the knowledge of God. Hang on it. Read it. Give it due diligence so that you may be able to practice knowledge, self-control, etc., etc. Peter gives us this list of things that we should be diligently seeking. Paul gives a similar list in the letter to the Galatians. He calls it the fruits of the Spirit. What you produce as a believer if you are truly seeking to grow in knowledge of him. Generally speaking, our goal is to be like Christ, right? Every sermon could end with, if, you know, Thank, thanks be to God for his son who has revealed himself to us. May we have the desire to live like our master. And Peter's letter is similar. We want to be like Christ. Why? Well, he tells us. He continues in verse 8. For if these qualities, Christ-like qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you lack these qualities, you're so nearsighted that you're blind. You've forgotten how you were cleansed from your sins. So Peter is explaining something that is used a lot in the Bible, referring to somebody who is living in sin, is being blind. This is an illustration used throughout scripture, of somebody stumbling along in the dark. We're afraid of the dark. When you're in a dark room, you stumble. If you're a father of a three-year-old who loves Legos, you find yourself in intense pain in the dark. And the Bible uses it for this very reason that it is confusing. It's scary. You don't know where your next step is gonna land. You might as well be blind if you are living in a, in a knowledge of the world and not a knowledge of Christ. Because the, the world is like a bunch of Legos and you're stomping all over it. But the knowledge of God is like a lamp in the dark. It's like a light unto your feet, as scripture would say. He continues, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Again, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So following these qualities that he lists, he lists something more, something a little more important that we should be seeking. And it is the assurance of your election. Now, the doctrine of election is taught in seminaries as years of courses. This could be years of sermons, so I'm not going to get into too much of the doctrine of election. But I will give you a quick and simple definition to what I believe to be biblically true when we speak of the doctrine of election. When we 
Peter says, make sure of your election. I'm going to give you a quick definition and try to move on. The doctrine of election teaches that God has chosen his elect, God's chosen people to call unto himself before he ever created anything else. Before the foundation of the world, he knew me. He knew I'd be here today as one of his sons. And despite my total depravity, my complete inability to do anything good, God elected me to receive atonement, a covering, a justification of my sins through Jesus Christ, his son. And because I've received that atonement, God pours out grace unto me, and I can't even resist it if I wanted to. His grace And because of resistible grace, I have the ability to persevere as what he would call a saint. That's the doctrine of election in a nutshell. Moving on. The question is, how do you make sure that you're elect? And I know if you're like me and we're completely honest with ourselves, that's kind of scary. It's like a scary thought. You know, like the scariest verse in the Bible where Jesus says that many will come before me and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, get away from me, I never see you. Scariest verse in the Bible. Peter wants to rid you of that fear and have you be sure of your salvation. Because assurance in your salvation will cause you to have an ignition in your heart that desires to know more about the God who has given you this salvation. So how do we do that? There's a couple questions I'll ask, and, and you can do a checklist, see how you do. If you answer yes to any of these, you're part of the elect, in my opinion. Do you love Jesus? If you are, you're an elect. You have no ability to love God if he hasn't chosen you to love him. He did not create within you the free will to choose him. He, in your total depravity, poured out his irresistible grace to you. Left on your own free will, you would never, ever in a million years choose God. Look at the first humans. They didn't. And all of their posterity will suffer from the same will. You don't have that ability within you unless the Holy Spirit's changed your heart, which means you're the elect. Do you wish that you didn't disobey God as much as you did? If you do, you're an elect. You wouldn't have that conviction. You wouldn't care. Do you desire to please the Lord at all? If you desire to please the Lord, you're, you're an elect. You would not have that desire unless he chose you to have that desire. Are you going to stand with Jesus before the throne next to the king of glory when you die? That's what, that's what happens with the elect. These are signs of the elect because you wouldn't care unless God has made, given you the ability to do so. Peter continues, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Simply put, this is the result of being the elect. You are just in by God. Despite your willingness to run away from him and your disobedience, he puts you on his shoulder and says, you're coming with me to the entrance of heaven. You're going to be with me for all of eternity because I died for you. 
That's the reward. Now gives us his frame of mind through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of why he's writing these things. He says, therefore, I always, I've, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, which were listed, that you know the, uh, this typo? that you know them and are established in the truth and have them. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. You know how I know that? As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Jesus has told him, Peter, you're going to die soon. He says, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. This is Peter's swan song. These are his last words. Jesus has told him, Peter, you have, who knows, a couple days left. Peter's most valuable words, words that through the Holy Spirit he has put down on paper as to, to leave a lasting legacy. And what does he want to do? He wants to remind you of these qualities, to stir up in you these truths. He knows that you need repetition to remember something. He knows that I do. That's how we study for exams, right? You read it over and over and over again. Before we had cell phones, that's how you would remember somebody's phone number. You would say it over and over and over again. I remember being a little kid, and you'd get a, a new phone number, and you would make a song to it. 9546747398. You repeat it, 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 because that's the way you remember it. Now keep in mind that as Paul, Peter is writing this letter, I guarantee you that every day of his life, he thought about the night that Jesus was betrayed. Because that was the night that Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, never, Lord. Never. And that night, somebody came to him and said, you're with Jesus, aren't you? He says, no, I don't know the man. Three times he said that. Peter forgot in that moment. His heart forgot the power that was within him to be able to turn from corruption. He needed to have that repetition in his heart. And what happened when Jesus resurrected and he came to Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yeah. Then tend my sheep, care for my... But then Jesus goes again, Peter, do you love me? He's like, yes, Lord, I just said I did. Then tend to my sheep. And then again, Jesus says, Peter... Do you love me? Lord, yes! You've already asked me. You're asking me three times yes. Then tend to my flock. So what is Peter doing? He's teaching you what Jesus has taught him, that we need to be repetitious, that we need to memorize and study, exegete, and pull this out so that when the time comes, we won't forget. And what Peter is doing is tending to his sheep, to you. He's writing you this letter off the instructions given to him by his master. As his final days approach, Peter compares his body, the word for body, as actually tent. He says, my body's going to be putting off. He doesn't say this body, I am gone forever. He says, there is a tent that is going to be set down. And he's writing to the nomadic Jews who would know well what that means. 
Jews that have been scattered and never really had a place to settle. He says, listen, I'm not going away forever. My body, this tent, is going to fade away, and I'm going to move from one place to another, from earth to heaven. So he starts to end his letter, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, for we were on the mountain with him. So Peter is winding down everything he said. He goes, you know why you should believe me? Because I was there. It wasn't from a movie I saw, or I heard this from a friend who heard this from a friend. He said, no, I was with Jesus, Jesus, John, and James, and we went up on a mountain, and while we were up on the mountain, Jesus' face all of a sudden started glowing white, radiant lights. His clothes turned completely white. A cloud came over us, and this mighty, deep voice said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It was the scariest moment of my entire life, but I was there. It was God the Father declaring his son to be the Messiah. Jesus was transfigured in front of him. I know this for a fact. I was there. Trust me. I saw it with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness. And he ends his letter in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ordered by the will of man. Men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he is saying of the old prophecies, says those prophetic words that you know, what you've been learning since you were a little kid in temple about the Messiah coming, this has been fulfilled in Jesus. And it's not just something that men made up, that men are writing down, even the words I'm writing to you now, have all been inspired and obtained and dictated by the Holy Spirit. These words are of God. And these words aren't just words, because again, we start talking about what it is to be in a dark place. And he says, while you're in this dark place, which you can call earth, or Broward County, or wherever you live. While you're here, you are in a dark place because this world is, is completely obsessed with sin. But for those of you who are believers, I will give you a lamp. I will give you a lamp to guide you. These are my words. They're living and holy and active. They're perfect, and they weren't just written by men. Yes, they were inspired by men. Yes, their vocabulary and their styles are involved, but this was written by me for you to guide you in this dark, dark world. So, Jordan, turn on the light switch. Because it's like this, it means nothing. Turn on your light switch until one day when the light switch is turned on forever, they call it the morning star, and it's going to be Jesus, and he's going to come in, probably all white like he was before, on a white stallion, and he's going to come and defeat sin, the sting of death forever, for all of eternity, and there will never, ever be darkness ever again. But until then, brothers and sisters, let this be a lamp unto your feet and be diligent, study it, love it. Repeat it. May it be in your heart. Peter's dying wish is this, to share the hope found in Christ. 
to share the hope that he had obtained by a free gift of God. It was God's grace through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants to be a repetitive reminder that God sent a promised redeemer from heaven, that this redeemer was born of flesh of the Virgin Mary, that he would live amongst us, and that the world would kill him as he sacrificed himself. And that because of his sacrificial blood, that we have an atonement for our sins. And because of this atonement for our sins, we're reconciled to God. We've been cleansed by the Holy Spirit. We've been delivered from the punishment we deserve, which is separation from God, which they call hell. We will be raised from the dead. He's given us his righteousness, securing you a place. For all of eternity, you, his elect. Amen? Amen? Father God, thank you that you have given us your words to be a lamp unto our feet. And I ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for we often walk around in the darkness blind because we are trying to search for our own ways or trying to find cleverly devised plans that are from the world. But you have given us your words. They are in our cars. They are at our homes. Lord, may we open it and by your spirit desire to love it, desire to study it, desire to have it pierced on our hearts, Lord. May we be repetitive, Lord, so that in times when the corruption and deception of the world are before us, that we could stand strong knowing that we have the divine power which raised you from the dead within us. Lord, teach us to hate our sin. May we be disgusted with it and love your righteousness. We pray this by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.